0: Dear friends in Christ, from our Old Testament reading, God declares, My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. In 1882, a New York City businessman named Joseph Richardson owned a narrow strip of land. It was five feet wide and 104 feet long. Another businessman, Hyman Sarner, owned a normal-sized lot adjacent to Richardson's skinny one. Sarner wanted to build an apartment building that fronted the avenue and offered Richardson $1,000 for the slender plot. Richardson was offended. He demanded $5,000. Sarner refused. So Richardson called him a tightwad and slammed the door in his face. Sarner assumed that the land would remain vacant and instructed his architects to design an apartment building with the windows facing the avenue. When Richardson saw the finished building, he resolved to block the view. No one's going to enjoy a free view over my lot. So Joseph Richardson built the house. It was five feet wide, 104 feet long, and four stories tall. The house was so narrow that only one person could use the staircase at a time, and the largest table in any room was 18 inches wide. A newspaper reporter of some girth once got stuck in the stairwell. After two tenants unsuccessfully tried to dislodge him, he finally got out by stripping down to his undergarments. The people called the building the Spite House. Well, The Spite House was torn down in 1915, which is odd, really very odd because I distinctly remember spending a few nights there not too long ago. And if memory serves me well, I think I saw you squeezing through the halls there as well. Spite House is a lonely place, isn't it? There's only enough room for one person. And people who live in the Spite House are reduced to just one goal, making someone miserable. And they usually do. They usually succeed. And who's that person? Themselves. We're in a sermon series on the book of Job, and if anyone had reason to live in the spite house with large amounts of animosity and resentment, it was Job. At the top of his list has to be his wife. Job had lost everything. And what's his wife's comment? Curse God and die. If Job wasn't feeling abandoned already, you know that's what he felt the minute his wife tells him to pull the plug and just have done with it. Then there was Eliphaz, the arrogant. He says in Job chapter 4, verse 7, that the upright never perish, and in the very next verse, that those who sow trouble reap it. Well, both of them imply that Job is getting from God what Job deserves. Add Bildad, the brutal, to the list. As he says in Job 8, verse 4, Your children sinned against God, so he gave them over to the hand of their transgressions. For Bildad, the only explanation for the tragic death of Job's children, because they sinned against God. And then there's Zophar the zealot. He adopts, like the others, an aloof, stoic attitude towards Job's suffering and grief. These people never address God. They never pray to God on Job's behalf. But in Job 11, verse 16, they all agree it's surprising that Job doesn't suffer more. What Job needs to do is stop claiming that he's righteous in God's sight and instead repent. There are few experiences in life more painful than rejection, especially when the rejection is from friends and family. Those who should understand, those who should be sympathizing with you, we wouldn't be surprised if Job built himself a spite house, if he moved in and barred the door and never came out. But, wonder of wonders, in our text for this night, in Job 48, God says, My servant Job will pray for you, for these friends, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. In Job 42, 7 to 8, Job is called a servant four times, four times. So what does God's servant do? Well, he intercedes for his enemies. He blesses those who curse him. He doesn't return evil for evil. And though Job is still a broken man, he's still scraping his boils with the pieces of broken pottery. He refuses to unleash his weapons of mass revenge. You understand, don't you? All this foreshadows and previews the greatest act of forgiveness. If anybody, I mean anybody, had a reason to live in the spite house with large amounts of animosity and resentment, it's Jesus. At the top of his list would be the chief priests and the scribes. They paid Judas to betray his master. They sent the temple soldiers to arrest Christ in Gethsemane. They brought his case to Pilate and stirred up the crowd. They were the cheerleaders behind the chant, Crucify him! Crucify him! And then there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the first to actively plot to kill Jesus. And when the Savior cleansed the temple, the Sadducees joined in the plan to murder Christ at any cost. And don't forget the Roman soldiers. They brutally butchered Jesus on Golgotha placed a crown of thorns on his head. They blindfolded him, struck him in the face with their fists. They spit on him, railed against him, and finally, with three nails, they crucified him. Add to the list Pontius Pilate, who found Jesus innocent. Yet because of the Jewish pressure, the Roman governor sentenced Jesus to crucifixion, publicly washing his hands of the matter. What a crass, political, two-faced act of betrayal. It's quite a list, wouldn't you agree? But it's not complete. There are other notorious sinners out there. For everyone of whom Christ could have, should have, had huge amounts of spite. Who are those other people? Well, you know, they're sitting and standing right here. It's you and me. We belong on that list. Our sins sent Christ to the cross. Our corruption... Our pride, our pettiness. The soldiers hoisted Jesus up. The cross sways forward and back until it's secured with wedges at the bottom to hold it upright in the hole. Then the gamble to decide who will get the remainder of the Savior's garments and any other personal effects. At that point, what does Jesus say? Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. So who's the them? Well, the chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Roman soldiers, Pilate, you, and me. God's servant intercedes for his enemies. He blesses those who curse them. He doesn't return evil for evil. Jesus is a broken man. He hangs there in pain and agony, yet he still refuses to give in, to unleash his weapons of mass revenge. He prays just like Job, and the Father will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. Jesus refused to live in the Sabbath house. How about you? Oh, I know. It's so easy to hold on to that raw bit of anger and bitter resentment to fan the fires of emotion. I know, I know. He treated you like trash. She left you when you needed her most. They let you down in the most crucial moment of your life. You can flee, you can fight, or you can forgive. Some opt to flee, to get out of the relationship, and start again somewhere else. Though, you know, I'm kind of confused. They're often surprised when things go sour again. Others fight. Houses become combat zones. Offices become boxing rings. Tension becomes a way of life. Still others choose to forgive. Where do they get that power? In the words of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Does that make forgiveness easy? No. Quick? Seldom. Painless? I don't think so. But stay the course. You'll spend less time in the spite house and more time in the grace house. And as one who's walked the halls of both of them, I guarantee you're going to love the space of grace. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.